This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between, how to get them made, how to make them, and how to try to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director, and I'm a producer, and I'm over the moon that you lot get to listen to today's guest, James Cullen Bresick, who's also a writer, director, and a producer, but what an amazing story he has. We will get to that, but I am super pumped to have with me as my co-host today, it is the fantastic producer and exec producer and actor. He stars in my Knights of Camelot movie, which is out very soon, July 13th. Uh, it is the delectable, fantastic Ian Sharp. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. Good to be here again. Come on. It's a delight to have you again, mate. Honestly, you've done so well in the previous podcast, as so many of our Twitter followers did say how good you were. Cheers, guys. <laughs> I really appreciate it. That's very kind. Very good Absolute to hear. pleasure. So if you don't know, Ian uh, has made quite a few brilliant films that I love, including The Marker, which uh, he came onto the podcast to talk about, which was episode 85, I yeah. do believe. Well remembered. So if you do want to hear Ian talk in depth about uh, how he makes his uh, films, then do go listen to that. He has made The Marker. He has been involved in these movies, Westwood and The Visitor, which is in post now, and Holston, which played at Sundance along with Westwood. And Under Gods is coming out as well soon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. So, yeah, Sharp House, my uh, production finance company, we've kind of worked on maybe 15, 20 films in the last two or so years. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting uh, few years. That's incredible. Hang on, 15 films in two years. Yeah, probably more. That's prolific, mate. Cheers, dude. That's, that's really impressive. How have you managed to sustain it to, <laughs> to do that many films in that short space Just of time? A, a good teammate, really. I think my superpower is delegation. And uh, another thing yeah. that we kind of instill at Sharp House is get rid of the ego. So, you know, we're all actively involved. I have a good team amongst us. And we're all, you know, over several projects at once. So, um I'm by no means a finance expert because a lot of films sometimes we just write a check, but uh, I know enough to kind of help the, the project get moving forward. And if need be, maybe further down the line, you know, help with sales, distribution, that kind of stuff. Well, what happens if someone wanted to, they had a project now and they went, oh, I want to give it to Sharp House. Is yeah. that something you're actively looking at? Yeah, definitely. I think... Uh, Whilst all this kind of COVID experience, and if we're still in that COVID, I can kind of explain what we're doing at the moment. But but if we're out of that, it's pretty much the same anyway. It's just a case of, you know, ideally some kind of a recommendation would be a good way to, to reach out to us. Um, or, you know, you've listened to this podcast is a great way of connecting with me over social media. Um, mm. And then, yeah, send me... You know, we've taken on projects at literally a logline stage, script stage, uh, completed films. We've jumped on exec producers as, an, as a financier. Normally, uh, they're a little bit more developed. Uh, they're a little bit more packaged and then we, we, we step in. But uh, really, you know, we're, we are a creative business. 
we're just fortunate to be able to put finance as well so at any stage really uh, we're happy to take a look at that's amazing you're also doing tv now right yeah yeah just branched into television so uh, mm. pretty new in that stuff uh it's got a few projects now that we're really excited about working with some new uh, emerging talent which is great and then same uh, principle applies you know log lines uh, bibles uh, a pilot episode anything really just uh, kind of you know we are definitely our doors are much much wider open when it when it comes to television that's for sure i think uh, any filmmakers out there listening you want to get in touch with ian uh, he's a great guy for one but also he makes stuff he gets stuff done and that in this industry is uh, a lot of people talk right i mean a lot yeah. of people do chat shit about saying hey i'm making a movie but actually yeah. uh, those who are actually doing it uh, it's kind of few and far between so Ian is one of those people so those people are listening to this you're already in a lucky position because now you know Ian enough to tweet him and say hey thank you for talking to us and spending your time and um, yeah it's a way in it's a way in and that's what you need in this industry it's all about who you know exactly definitely is it's a good point yeah. very good point so obviously let's talk about uh, this week's podcast uh, this week's episode where we have James Cullen Bressack who is uh, producer, director, exec it wears many many hats but he made his first feature film when he was 18 years old wow yeah, right yeah. I mean that, oh. it's pretty impressive it is impressive he made a film called My Pure Joy when he was 18 for 7 grand 7 thousand dollars yeah dollars even so it's less and he learned so much on that movie he even says himself he can't watch that film now uh, because he's, he's moved on so much but I think it's I think it's a really interesting episode for those people who are uh, get out and do it types because yeah. he's a huge example of someone who can do that yeah. and he talks about how uh, how to deal with difficult crew he talks about how he made his second and third movies what he learned how he wanted to build and how now he gives a voice to first time filmmakers uh, similar to Sharpie here uh, how he does help filmmakers and how on his sequels to one of his breakout hits uh, that he then went on to produce and exec produce the Jennifer series he um, brought on new directors every time mm -hmm. um, and I think that's impressive we also talk about how he uh, directed Beyond the Law which is a Steven Seagal movie which is out now which is kind of cool um anything like with Steven Seagal you, you kind of know what you're getting but I think uh, I think James has delivered something totally different and fresh here and I think you'll you'll like it a lot so yeah it was a fun fun chat with him wasn't it really impressive really humble guy I really enjoyed the conversation totally agree so you're gonna enjoy this too I'm sure you'll get a lot out of this pens and papers ready um, also if you haven't yet do go watch The Dare do go support if you are in the USA and Canada um, it means the world to me and if you do watch it give us a lovely review on Amazon on iTunes it, uh, it does make a huge difference to young filmmakers I say young I'm not young uh, it does make a huge difference to filmmakers so uh, do support if you can Serial Killer's Guide to Life is also out as well and Arthur and Merlin Knights of Camelot is released on July the 13th that's literally I think three weeks away Ian Sharp is obviously starring in that aren't you mate yeah. as well as Richard Brake Stella Stocker and as my King Arthur Richard Short so why not go watch these movies that we've been talking about for so long? I need to give a shout out to some fantastic people who have just launched their crowdfunder on Greenlit. It is Charlotte Movie. Um, it is made by Martin Hardwick and Georgia Conlon. They're producing a very intriguing indie film 
called Charlotte. It's a psychological thriller with a big twist. I don't want to give too much away. So why not go to their greenlit page and go check out the movie? And if you have any spare cash floating around, please donate and please support. This project looks amazing. And it has been exec produced by the fantastic Lynn and David Coleman from Dow Productions, who are amazing. So do support if you can. Link is in the show notes, as always. And well, if you've got a crowdfunder ready to go, let me know and I'll shout it out on the podcast. If you just want to shout out, let me know as well. Or uh, if you are a filmmaker and you've got had a film released or about to, then get in touch. The Filmmakers Podcast at gmail.com. Or just slide into my DMs. Uh, our DMs, I should say, at Filmmakers Pod on Twitter. And a huge thanks to Robbie McCain for editing uh, this week's podcast. Thank you, brother. It means the world. And if you do like this podcast, do tell your friends, do pass the message on. And if you're feeling really nice, and wonderful, and I know you are. Uh, why not go to iTunes and give us a lovely, lovely review? Right, Sharpie, should we get to it? Our chat with James? Let's go for it. Here it is. Enjoy, everyone. It's a delight to welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast, James Cullen Bressack. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Joining me today is Ian Sharp, fellow producer. Glad to be here. So, James, tell me, tell me, how is it going right now? You're in LA. It's a little bit mental. Are you getting cabin fever right now? Yeah, I'm getting a little bit of cabin fever. I mean, you know, being trapped in in your house. Uh, you know, I haven't really left the house in like thirty days. But I, I really can't complain because there's there's you know prisoners in prison right now with, for nonviolent crimes here, mm. and they don't even have Netflix and stuff like that. I mean, I think it's a uh, it's an interesting thing to, to think about. It definitely puts you in other people's shoes. I'll tell you that much. Uh, you know, for the first time in nearly a decade, I'm cooking all of my meals. Like I used to, you know, go out for dinner uh, like every other night or something. It changes you, doesn't it? How's your filmmaking world change? Because obviously you're a very productive man. You, what's your process of trying to be an indie filmmaker right now? Has it changed? Obviously it has. You know, it was funny because I, I was talking to my girlfriend before all this happened and I was like, you know, I need a vacation. Like, you know, in 10 years, I haven't taken off mm. more than like, you know, a, like two or three weeks in between movies in 10 years. Uh, and so like, you know, my dad passed away. Um, uh, Sorry to hear that, man. About yeah. seven or eight months ago now, um, back in August. And so, you know, I, 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 I just wanted some time off because even then I, I wasn't able to take really time off because I had a movie going like right after that I had already like signed on to do. Um, so, and I, I really just, you know, haven't had any time off. So I, I told her, Hey, I want to have time off. And so we booked a vacation uh, to go somewhere. And, uh, and then, you know, all this happened. So I guess <laughs> technically this, this is my vacation. It's just not as, um, not as glamorous, is it? When you're stuck in your house as a, a no. beautiful beach. I mean, I'm doing all the same things I would have done. Um, I'm just not doing it in a glamorous location, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it's, it, it's interesting too. Cause you, you, yeah, I'm also finding like I'm I'm not doing well not being creative. So, I mean, I started making a experimental film where I'm just like going out anytime I'm out like grocery shopping or doing something. I just film random things that I'm just going to, mm -hmm. you know, cut together in like a Koyaanisqatsi type of way. Um, right now, distributors are super hungry to get something because yes. they need finished movies because nothing else is going to be shot for the rest of the year. Yeah. <laughs> and, this, and this is interesting. Obviously, I want to talk to you about that and how 
you're finding things right now, you know, as, as a very creative person that you are. And like you say, people are crying out for stuff right now. And it is a good time if you have a movie finished. Are you in that position where obviously for Jennifer is now, you know, about to, to break out? And um, so that, yeah, that was released. Uh, and I had uh, Beyond the Law, which came out in theaters, which starts Steven Seagal and DMX uh, yeah, in the yeah. States that I directed. And then I have my movie alone that played Citrus, which was a horror movie which we just got a distribution deal this week oh congratulations um, that we're just closing we're closing the stuff on and that's going to have a really decent release now um which is pretty cool um uh, and, and i think what it really gears towards is and, and we're seeing more of this now because everybody's home uh which is like niche markets are are super important because like yes you know um there's a million things to watch across Amazon prime and Netflix. Right. But you, me and everybody after about a week, you're scrolling through and you're like, you've either seen it or you're not interested on everything that's on there, even though they have millions of things on there because you're just no longer interested in what's there. You want new stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's just how it is because you, you know, if you're a horror fan that likes particularly slasher films and in about a week's time, two weeks time, you've gone through all the slasher films that are on. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you like, you know, adult comedies, you know, you've watched all of those by now. Mm. So they need all these things to replenish what the niche market is focused on because people are starting to go, well, there's nothing here anymore because the thing that they're into watching and they're at home watching a lot of is now gone. Yeah. If that makes sense, because, you you know, yes, there's a million things. But if you're if you're focused on just watching stuff that's similar to Family Guy, you're going to go through all those shows in about two weeks. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that's why luckily in some way that the dare came out, you know, four weeks ago or whatever it was, because people are now at home going, hey, I'm like, say, going through all the uh, dark horror movies, you know, slasher movies type thing or movies and the dare will pop up and people are watching it and it's been great. And for that, because now people are going, I want to, I want, want to watch movies. Really quickly, you'll also notice another thing like, you know, people would think people are only watching these streaming services like, you know, Netflix and, and, you know, Disney plus and all that stuff. And those are great, but uh, you can tell that people want more content than just that because all of our rental numbers and talk to your distributor if you, if you haven't yet, but our rental numbers are up on everything. Mm. Like the stuff, the actual paid rentals, because the stuff that isn't on those sites People are paying to watch because they just want to see, you know, what they consider is new. They want to feel like they're paying to go see something that they would have seen in the theaters or that they would have, you know, bought on DVD during this time in the store. There's still that thrill of spending some money to do something. It makes you feel like you're. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, we we we've been uh, for, for whatever reason, Jumanji two didn't come out in the UK until recently, and uh, it was on um, Virgin, uh, one of the kind of uh, video on demand platforms here, and I think it was twenty pounds or whatever. And I was like, "Yep, no problem." Uh, and I think that was just to rent it as well. It wasn't actually to buy it. And I think obviously, you know, twenty pounds is still a lot of money, but I think as a parent right now, I am whatever I get access to, whatever kind of premium content that I normally. Would would go to the cinema for i'm paying for it you know that's two hours of escapism right there 
I completely agree. I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, I don't feel that we can put a price on like peace of mind and entertainment right now in these times. Like, you know, uh, not saying that like people should price gouge people, but like, you know, I don't, I don't think the consumer is going to be hesitant to spend between like, you know, two 99 to like, you know, $10 to watch something that they haven't seen. James, what are your thoughts on Quibi by any chance? Do you have any thoughts? Cause you know, you know, I, before all this was not really like, I didn't understand who would care, but, um, I, I, Quibi offered like a three month trial. So I'm on Quibi and, and I have to say the new season of punked is a lot of fun. It's the only thing that I've watched on it. I've watched all the episodes, but I like it. It's fun. And it's fun that there's only like, you know, 10 minute videos. It's basically like watching silly videos on YouTube, but with ridiculously high production value. Right. Um, so, I mean, I've enjoyed it because it's like one of those things, especially like, you know, I've been doing a, a good amount of gaming over here uh, or, and so it's just like, you know, when you're waiting for something to load, watch a 10 minute episode. Right. You know, when you're when you're supposed to have a waiting on them to call you watch a 10 minute episode, like mm-hmm. I'm not fully getting into it's 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 good little time filler stuff. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I uh, I don't know if a lot of other people experience this, but I know I'm actually uh, able to give more of my and I, it's horrible saying this because I know I'm a filmmaker, but a lot of the time I'm able to give more of my undivided attention to something I'm watching on my phone yeah. than I am on my TV because my phone isn't going off mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm on it watching something. Yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, you, for me, it's like, you know, seeing a movie in the theaters, I shut off my phone. I can be completely invested. But in your house, you know, it's it's it, it's hard to always focus on what's on the TV. It's much easier on, on my phone a lot of the time. That's true. That's true. I mean, you make a good point there. So someone mentioned it the other day. I, I can't remember. Uh, maybe I read it somewhere where obviously, you know, when we got a movie on in the background or at the cinema or whatever, you know, we still somewhat still checking in on our phone. But now Quibi is designed for that platform. I, I haven't got it yet, but I will. I'm just curious. Like, are you tempted to to kind of look at something else, or, or is it a weird consumer experience where literally you're engaged with the phone and you got to stick with the phone? You can't really kind of concentrate on anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, you're not using anything on your phone when you're doing it, so you're only concentrating on what's on Quibi, yeah. which is which is you know, you give that your undivided attention. Yeah. Um, I, I I like the um, the the show Punked that they have. Yeah. They have a bunch of other shows, but those other shows haven't really caught my attention yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, you know, that, that said, like, you know, I might I might get into some of them because some of them look fun. But for yeah. me, I don't know if I'd be into a, a series that has like a, an actual story arc that's only like six minute episodes. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Is it? But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should watch it and find out because that you know they have high production value. But I've actually only watched Punked. Okay. Yeah, it's there's so many platforms now, but I think it's interesting. I think kids are going to love that they like their six minute bursts and they like their you know it, their concentration levels are different because of YouTube and because of all the little fast videos that they've got. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be big. I really do, in my opinion. You know, as filmmakers. I think we should be supporting it because it's not going to replace mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. Yeah. But it's they're definitely they're definitely spending money. Yeah. And so like, you know, that's great because it's it's boosting that economy. Totally agree. So obviously you have made 
and been involved with so many movies. It's it's quite incredible, you know. The and you are still quite young, um, but you, from what I can see, and please correct us if if we're wrong, is you're eighteen. You burst onto the scene with your your, your sort of debut movie, My Pure Joy, but. Before that, you'd already produced, co-produced, been involved with, casting director, you were execs, associate producer on so many other shorts, movies, bits before that. Tell us what you were doing to get, you know, to make your first movie by 18 that you directed and how you suddenly already created this this world of you were already a machine. You were already a movie making machine by that point. You know, basically I, in school, like I was, I was the kid that like, you know, the teacher would assign a book report and I would make a short film about why I didn't want to do the book report. <laughs> so, so, you know, that was pretty much what I would, I would turn in. So a lot of my early short films, which are, you know, listed on IMDb was just me fucking off in school, not wanting to do the things that I wanted to, because I kept saying like, you know, when am I going to use this when I'm making movies? I'm you know, I don't need to do this. I'm, I'm going to be making movies. I had a very one track mind that this is what I was going to be doing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd have to say that it started at a very young age. You know, my dad was a writer. Um, he, he won three Emmys and a WGA award. Wow. Um, so you obviously got your inspiration from him. Did he want you to go into the business? Oh yeah. My dad was my, you know, my biggest fan. Um, and, uh, you know, we actually wrote a couple of things together, which was an amazing experience. Wow. Oh, but I, I learned a lot about storytelling and stuff from him and, and it was, it was great. And, you know, he, he told me at a very young age that I was going to be like a director because, you know, he, um, right. he had a TV show, uh, at the time it was called Captain Simeon and the Space mm -hmm. Monkeys. And, uh, and I helped him come up with, I was three years old and I helped him come up with an episode. Uh, um, and, and so that came out. And so he took me to the recording of the episode and David Warner was playing the character that I had like come up with for the episode, mm -hmm. uh, which was recess one, which is, uh, an evil monkey that turns good. And, uh, I, uh, I, I walked up to him and gave him direction at three years old. And my dad, my dad found it hilarious. And I like, I, I, I said to him, I created you. And my dad was like, you know, you're, you're going to be a director kid. And then, uh, you know, growing up, uh, you know, we were, we would, uh, watch movies a lot together and, and That's we would cool. talk about, um, you know, what was being done in the movies. Like, you know, he would ask me, we'd watch a scene. He'd ask me why it was, you know, why it looked that way, why it was. In, you know. That's so cool, man. It's lovely to hear. My, my son, he's he's five and he, he's only just realizing what daddy does. In fact, um, uh, like you, James, a bit like we all do, really, I kind of wear multiple hats. And yesterday I was on a, uh, a TV series, like one of the kind of mainstream shows here. And my son stayed and watched it with, with me. And, you know, five minutes later, he was bored out of his mind. But for those few minutes, you know, he was like, wow, you know, how did you do that or whatever? And that's such a nice experience, I think, to be able to share that. So that's amazing that you, you, your dad took the time out to kind of, you know, explain what he does and stuff. So that's a, it's a lovely story. Yeah. So, right. so when you made My Pure Joy then, by then you were really experienced, I suppose. It wasn't like you were walking on set and hadn't, you know, picked up a camera before, you hadn't edited before, you hadn't directed, you know. I mean, it's a horror movie. We love these kind of movies. Obviously, I'm a big horror fan as well. Tell us about it. Tell us if, if you can remember the feeling of you going, right, I'm going to make a feature. 
how did you raise the money? How did you go about it? That'd be really interesting. So, I mean, I was uh, at 18 years old. I just finished uh, high school. I had not tried in school that much, so I wasn't going to get into a good college. My two older sisters had already gone to college. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents were saying, like, I need a scholarship to be able to, like, you know, afford going to college or, or I was going to have to take out loans. And I didn't want to be in debt. And so I said, Robert Rodriguez only needed $7,000 to make his first movie. That's all I need. And so I wrote a script, which was my pure joy. And I just sent it to everybody I knew and was asking, like, if, you know, if they knew anybody I could get $7,000 from. And uh, a friend of mine uh, decided to put up the $7,000. Um, and so I made the movie for seven grand. Um, and uh, it was, I mean, I personally think it's terrible um <laughs> some people some people like it like there's there's people who have gotten tattoos of the main character uh but but i think it's awful uh, it, it, that was my film school when you said that like you know i was experienced i i, I said i was experienced enough to have an experience because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know i learned so much on that movie because i uh you know, I, I had to do every single job. Like I was operating the boom while, while directing, mm -hmm. you know, and mixing the sound and everything. So, you know, I learned so much, uh, on that movie. And, and I think the biggest lesson I probably learned on that film above anything else was, um, I really needed to, uh, not be so precious because my biggest mistake on that film was, you know, I, I wrote it, I directed it, I edited it edited it. And so like, I wasn't going to cut it out of the movie. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the movies, my first movie, which should have been like a, a brisk 80 minutes is 110 minutes. Wow. wow. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> you were in those, those really nice shots yeah. and stuff like that. You were like, Oh no, this looks ace. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think yeah, even wow. at the time though, that it, and now looking back, you can, of course, we all look back at our projects and go, oh gosh, oh we're at the time yeah. though. Did I, I cringe? I but, can't watch it. No, I okay. can't watch but it. At the time, yeah. did you think you were making something really good or did you know at the time? Oh, at the time I thought I was making, you know, I thought I was making Academy award worthy okay. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> my, you know, my, uh, my, I remember my dad literally said to me, uh, you know, you're going to want to cut about like, you know, 20 minutes out of this movie. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not cutting anything. You're being ridiculous. <laughs> and like, you know, four movies later, I look back, I'm like, oh, geez, yeah. you know, and, and I realized like it, it was so funny because I found myself telling people like, oh, well, you know, these scenes are just slow. Like when we watch it together, when I was younger, these scenes are slow, but it picks up later. And I was like, I should just cut down the scene that I'm saying these scenes are slow. <laughs> Why am I like, yeah, you can get through the slow scenes. It's important for what happens wow. later. And <laughs> what else did you learn? Cause that's really fascinating that you learned that, you know, not quite quickly afterwards, but was there anything else you learned on that set was working with actors, you know, going, I need more, I need a sound person, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it was interesting because, you know, every time I did a movie, I remember the first time I had like an actual crew, for one of my movies, which is a lesson I learned like later. Um, and I was just so grateful for them because I was like, wow, 
I don't have, you mean there's a person who does the thing that I've been doing? Like all I, all I have to do is talk to the actors and like my DP and like actually like direct it and like talk to my like wardrobe and, and costume. I don't have to shop for all the clothes myself and all the stuff that goes on the walls myself. I don't have to dress the walls. Like I did everything myself. So it's like, I was like, wow, there's people that do these things. I can just focus on just directing. That's great. Which is why, like, you know, now, even to this day, like if we're falling behind, like I, I, I will help whatever department, like I'll get my hands dirty because like I, I, I did it coming up. So it's like, you know, why wouldn't I, I'm not going to just sit down and just wait for it to get done. Like, it's like, okay, like, you know, if we got to hustle, like I'll, I'll, I'll carry some sand. I love that. And it's so true because you've learned on the ground up and I did and Sharpie did. I've, you know, I've made sandwiches for people on set. I've made sure that, you know, whatever props had to be there. So even now making movies with budgets, you still can't help but think about that. You can't, it's in the back of your mind. It's nice to go, someone else is doing it, but it's still there. And I think at any point you just pick up a tripod or pick up food or move something or move cars. It's part of it. Yeah. And you, and you, you have to dance that line of not being disrespectful mm -hmm. because like, you know, you don't want to like insult somebody and it's not that like, you know, you think you're better at it than them, but like sometimes me just doing it is uh, easier and quicker than me explaining to them yes. how to do it. So true. So, you know, there's that constant dance cause you know, there's egos involved. You don't want to hurt people's feelings, but you know, you also want to be able to jump in and, and do the thing that you yeah. need to do. And how, how do you navigate that James, you know, when you are dealing with, with you know 60 potential egos I, it's something that i've i'll be honest i i have struggled particularly in, in the early stages of my career where i was coming across kind of different kind of personality types and egos were flaring up you know i, I again at my earlier stage of my career i would really struggle to kind of contain myself whereas i work with my wife and my wife is you know a, a much much better on set producer because she really is measured calm and can really listen and it's something i've had to kind of really improve on but how do you cope with that being considering you've done so much it depends james the director and james the producer cope with it very differently right you know but i mean i'm very good at reading people and and it just depends on you know, what response you feel is going to work best for somebody. Cause there's some people that like, if you're too nice to them, they are literally just going to steamroll you because they're there yeah. to just like, you know, sure. do that. And like, you know, one of those telltale signs is if the first thing somebody says on your set, if they're like a crew or an actor or like, blah, 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 like you're not paying me enough to do this. Or like, normally I make this or blah, blah, yeah. blah. Like if you've agreed to do the movie and that's what you start saying, like that's the type of person that you need to get rid of. They can't be there anymore. 100%. Because, because like they will, they will be a, a toxic sickness that spreads through the film. Like that's not, I, I'm not trying to be ridiculous, but across so many movies that I've done, like I've just like, I've experienced it so many times that like that will be a bad apple because they like, if they're saying stuff like that on like day one, yeah. they're just begrudgingly there. They think that this, this is beneath them. They're going to like undermine you and sabotage. And, and it's a weird thing that you have to think about, but it, it is true. Like you really do have to look out for that behavior because there's it, it's people who are there who just believe that like, you know, they shouldn't really have to be there, but they took the job anyway. So they're upset about their own decision and, and they're not going to leave, but they're just going to be negative the entire time. Yeah. yeah, it's so true. It's absolutely yeah. vital. It's very hard, though, to remove them. Sometimes you sort of go, look, you don't want to be here. 
you're making everyone bring people down and they'll be the first ones who are bitching in the corner and and because they are experienced just the other people who aren't so experienced do listen to them and they go oh gosh yeah it must be like that oh it is shitty and you have that horrible feeling you know you're absolutely right you do try yeah. and move them on if you don't want to be here go and and that's one thing where like you know I, I've t- i'm talking from experience like many times i've tried to make that work but it always ends up biting me in the ass right. and like you know i'm not i'm not trying to be um rude by saying it because like you know I, I i i believe it's a team environment and i like to have a lot of fun on my movies and i love the people i work with a lot of the people i've worked with have done you know 10 movies with me the same people over again but you know if, if they're complaining to you they've already spent a whole bunch of time complaining to the crew yeah true. yeah very true you've got to nip it in the bud straight away and are you still witnessing that, James? Now, obviously, the more work that you're doing, the the more successful you've become. Are you still seeing that time and time again, or, or kind of uh, a little less frequent? You know, I dealt with it a lot more when I was younger. You know, the younger I was, the more like they're like, you know, this kid shouldn't be doing this. So, like, you know, there was that. But like, it, it, it's interesting because every time you go up a budget level, you have, you know, you have those people. Mm, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like, you know, I, I was, I, I was have the crew that works at that budget level, you go up a budget level, you bring that crew with you and then you fill some of those holes with new people as well. And those, some of those new people are like people that were working on an even higher level and they're taking this job because they're between jobs. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, uh, and, and half the time they're amazing and you're like, Oh, this guy's great. And then the other half of the time, you know, you end up with somebody who really just does not want to be there, but they're just working because they got to bring in money and they're begrudgingly, you know, doing everything, you know, it's, 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 and it's one of those things that like, I actually bring this up only because I've listened to a lot of filmmaker podcasts and my buddy is like actually candidly mentioned this. Yeah. I mean, we all experience it. I mean, I think you, you raise a really good point there as well, James, where, you know, we're all trying to raise the bar. We're all trying to get to a certain point in our careers. And, and though, yeah, we might have have started up on, on, on lower budgets and, and, you know, and, and not had the, the luxuries that come with bigger budgets, but, you know, ultimately, you know, you want to, work with people that are just they're grateful to be there and we're, it's a team effort and we're going to all dig in and we're all going to chip in uh, and whatnot and eventually you know you you reward that loyalty and that good behavior with those bigger budgets further down the line so i think people you know I, I do think people should really sometimes think about that you know the bigger picture as well i mean on on in indie film we are asking our crew because a lot of them are working for below what they would normally get elsewhere and so like you know we're we're asking our crew to bet on the idea that we are going to be successful in the future and we'll get bigger budgets and more stuff you know and and that's and, and so what happens is you know you're going up and your crew that is coming up with you is going up and sometimes you pass people that are on their way down and they can either go back up with you or they can, you know, you stay where they are or they can continue to go down. I mean, that's just how it is. And what do you find is the best way to deal with a problem crew member or problem person on set? What, what do you find is the best way to approach it? I mean, I honestly, now I I interview people and you can tell in the interview if they're going to be a problem. 
I mean, you know, before I would go off of credits and, you know, do a phone call and like do like a brief interview, but I do like a way more in depth interview with people because you can really tell mm. now. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's just signs you can tell. And it's, you know, I, I I've just gone, I, I've just decided to go with my instinct more often. Like, you know, if there's a red flag, you know, and you're, you're not, you're not getting the warm, fuzzy feelings about mm. it. Like you're, you're usually right. Yeah. It's yeah. from experience. Do you have a, a bunch of kind of, uh, um, peers, uh, James, uh, producer friends or director friends that you get references from as well. Yeah, I do. I have, I, I do. Um, but you know, ultimately what I have is I have the crew that I've worked with the most yeah. that, uh, that I've used many times. And a lot of the times maybe they'll be on a commercial so they can't do it. Or like a, they're on a Netflix show or something bigger. Right. But they will, they will recommend somebody. Yeah that that would be you know a good person for them and a lot of the time you know i i go with i go with their recommendation yeah um because it's somebody i've worked with before that did the job that i wanted to do and they're saying well this guy's good uh and can handle that job yeah i think recommendations is is really key as well here because word gets around very quickly as much as there's quite a lot of people making indie films it is a small industry as in the word sure, does yeah. get as much as directors might only make one movie, two movies a year, crew members working quite constantly and word goes around and it doesn't take much for yeah. someone to go, nah, you don't want to work with them. They were, ah, honestly, they were just a bit moany and a bit, we all talk, you know, podcasts like this, we talk, it's, it's easy. Me and Sharpie talk. Did you work with that person? Yeah. I'm not sure about them. Or I'll, I'll ring a mate who worked yeah. with them. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll rarely, I will rarely hire anybody that hasn't worked with somebody I know so I can find out what they were like. And, and you'll notice like everybody's very diplomatic. So like, you know, I'll call a filmmaker and say, Hey, you know, how was this person to work with? And a lot of the time they'll say stuff like, you know, um, Oh yeah, I worked with them. (laughs) 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 if, If, if you call me and somebody I enjoyed working with and you say, Hey, how were they to work with? I'd be like, dude, they're fucking awesome. You should yeah. hire them. Like if, if I'm not giving that, if I'm not getting that response a lot of yeah. the time, I'm like, Oh shit. Well, that says enough. Yeah, right. It does. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. 
So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. One of my friends, uh, he's just got one of the leads in the the second series of The Witcher, and I gave him um, his first kind of initial break um, in film. And at the time, you know, he was not long graduated, and he he was one of those guys that came in early, stayed later, chipped in, moved set costumes whatever and i just i could i could see that he was so hungry like i was a few years before and i said mate just stay on set watch ask questions do whatever you need to do to learn and again that attitude there's a reason why he is and there's countless examples of of guys that have just got to that 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 level you know eventually because they just put in the work and they're good people and they appreciate it's a privilege to do this for a living yeah no it, it definitely is a privilege and i mean like dude we get to do the coolest thing in the world. We get to like play make believe on like a large scale. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like it's awesome. It awesome. Yeah. And then speaking of awesome, obviously your first film uh, did really well. My pure joy. As much as you might not like it, or you might say, "Oh, I'm you know tentative about watching it again," but it did really well. You know, it went to the top of the charts. It it did really well for your career, right? Because you then went on and made your second film not too long after Hate Crime. Did was it? Easy, uh, I'm saying, uh, at the end of that, to get the second movie made. I mean, did you go for a bigger budget? Did you work with some of the same crew? It was a slightly bigger budget, and you know, no, it was just me as the crew and like you know, two right. other people, okay. three other people. But but um, but it was easier because the guy who invested in the first movie got his money back, so he just flipped Perfect. it back in. Wow. So wow. so I just did the. You know, that's how I got the second. Which is movie. great. Which is a, which yeah. is a really cool start for you, isn't it? How did you know how to distribute the film? Then, how did you know to get it out to the right places? You know, uh, how did you even get it to the top of the charts? You know, it's funny. I sent it to a distributor, um, and they picked it up. And it was the distributor I wanted to distribute the movie. So it was like the very first distributor I wanted to take the movie took right. it. Um, for my first movie and, and how I, how I got in touch with them is, you know, this was 10 years ago. So how I got in touch with them is I had all of their DVDs. I collected all their Mm -hmm. DVDs, um, and like would buy them. And on the back of the DVDs, it had like a mailing address. So I just literally took a copy of the movie, put it, uh, you know, put it in an envelope with like a letter and mailed it to them. And I got a phone call saying they wanted to pick it up. I love that story. That's so great thinking outside the box of how you could do it and finding a distributor who you've liked and said, well, if they distribute my movie, I'll be over the moon. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, a lot of people, when it comes to distribution, you know, people are like, Oh, I want this movie to be with this person or I want this movie to be with this person. But like, you know, look at what they actually put out. One of the things that has really helped me with like, you know, getting my movies distributed is I go like, okay, well, are they putting out similar movies to the kind of movie that I'm going to make? And like similar in the sense of like, yeah, the story might be different, but like to a consumer, is it a similar movie? Because if to a consumer, the box is going to make it look like this type of movie, then yeah, they're going to end up being interested. Like say you carried on working on a very small team on your second feature. Is that because you didn't know, or is that just because you thought, well, it worked the first time I'll carry on. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) It was because it worked the first time and I was like, oh, I'll carry on. 
<laughs> well, it, it worked. I mean, did it work? I mean, I, I had that attitude on my second one and it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, so my second movie was a found footage movie. Um, okay. It was made uh, all to look like one continuous shot. And so I like DP'd it and, and directed it and, and, and it definitely worked. You know, I, I graduated to larger budgets and, you know, uh, you, you know, the golden rule, right? You know, he who has the gold makes the rules. So like <laughs> eventually I started working with producers that had done movies and, and they, you know, <laughs> they demanded I had a crew. <laughs> You're like, I can do all this myself. But, like, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. But all of yeah, but all of it was asked backwards on my first three movies too, because like I didn't get paid at all on my first three movies, and and that's fine. Like they were lower budget, but I didn't even know that I could get wow. paid to like do the job of directing. I thought I would. I was just my job was to like I would get a percentage of what the movie made if it did well, and like every time it would be like a gamble roll of the dice, and then like you know I remember the first time I got hired to direct a movie and I got paid and I was paid <laughs> literally I was paid a thousand dollars for my first directing gig and uh that I was paid to do and I was like holy shit you can get paid to do this <laughs> I know that's a really weird feeling isn't it it's almost like you feel like you're, you're some sort of charlatan uh, of course I love working with a crew and and you know my earlier comments aren't to uh aren't to knock on crew. I have, I've had a lot of crew that I love and respect and, and I've worked with many times. Uh, it's more just, you know, obviously this is a filmmaker podcast for, mm -hmm. for tips and tricks and, yeah. and I just want to know that like, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, like going out there, it is a battlefield and you have to strategically, you know, move your chess pieces in the right way to have the most people surrounding you that are moving towards the same goal and on are on your team. So when it seems like people aren't on your team, you know, nip that in the bud quickly. We learn as filmmakers, producers, directors, when we're the head of the, the ship to talk to the crew better. We understand that they can't get inside our heads and we have to open up and say, here's what I'm aiming for this because they don't know. Um, and especially if you're sat there with an actor doing a scene for ages and they're, they're cold in the back room going, well, I can't do anything right now. They don't know what's going on. And I think it's really important that you tell your crew, you speak to them. And I've yeah. learned that. I've learned that from making films and making mistakes and going, shit, I need, I can be better. I can be better. I think we always think that, right? And it, what you said, James, at the beginning was, you know, preparation is everything in that interviewing process. You just be honest. You know, and just be upfront with them and say, look, you know, this isn't a job that we're necessarily going to earn a fortune on, but we're going to have some fun. We're going to make the best movie possible. And, you know, let's let's bring that attitude from the very beginning. Yeah, definitely. You'd made three movies by the time you were 21, right? You, I mean, I'd say you've made, you'd, you'd made by that point, it looks like, you know, 30 or 40 you've been involved in, but you directed three movies by the time you were 21. Is that right? More. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> This is incredible. I mean, was it just a case of you were just going, right, I'm just going to do another one, right? I'm just doing another one. Was it almost every you know, other month? At 18, I made My yeah. Pure Joy. At 19, I made Hate mm -hmm. Crime. Um, do a movie, and that movie fell through. You were about to do a movie, and it fell through? Yeah, it fell through, and I was I was completely broke and, and didn't know what to do um, and, and how to, you know, do stuff. And I, you know, people had asked me, how did I get out there and make movies? And I had always say, well, I just picked up a camera and did mm -hmm. it. And so, you know, get out there and do stuff. And so, like, you know, I was like, I got to practice what I preach. So I reached in my pocket, took out my cell phone, pointed it at my friend, told him to say something. And, you know, he did. 
And then I was like, oh my God, this is going to work. I went and wrote the script and that became mm-hmm. to Jennifer. And I made that on a $500 budget. Wow. Um, this is one of the first, f- first films shot on the iPhone five as well, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. And I was, I, I was, I, I made that on a $500 budget and that film, cause for some reason, everybody was impressed on the iPhone stuff. That film uh, is the film that got me uh, hired to do uh, a movie. So after that, I was hired to do uh, White Crack Bastard, which I was, you know, that's the thousand dollar. I was paid a thousand dollars. And then after that, I was hired to do 13, 13, 13 and Pernicious. Yeah. And so those were all the movies I made by 21. Right. Um, and then after that, uh, based on Pernicious, which went on, you know, Netflix and and, and all that stuff, and uh, played film festivals around the world, I just got consistently hired to do movies from there. And so, um, at twenty two years old, I believe it was either twenty one or twenty two, uh, I directed Blood Lake for Animal Planet. So I did the first. Um, uh, a feature film for animal planet that was like a live action feature film uh, scripted um and was like the youngest filmmaker to have done a movie for network television incredible huge congrats um, on that man and well done thank you and then from there yeah i just kept consistently like you know getting hired to do stuff and some of the people that i had worked with had moved up to do you know different things at different companies so they would bring me in as well amazing were you looking for certain projects because obviously it's quite horror based were you like i'm going to stick with this genre did you have an agent did you have anyone guiding you once you started to do well and you were breaking out and people were paying you I mean, the only person guiding we, I would get guidance from my dad and my dad's point of view on everything was do as much as you can, because at some point, you know, these are all just going to be thought of as your early films. That's Mm. really interesting. (laughs) That is true. Because we do get locked into this. No, my next movie has to be amazing. I have to break out. I have to make loads of money so I can make more and bigger, bigger. Mm. But I think you're right. I think the more we do, the more we learn. So it's just of conveyor belt of let's keep making movies as best as we can and we grow yeah i mean i i believe you know filmmaking is a muscle and so you need to exercise that muscle and and build it up and you know i i think i've like really honestly like found my voice as a filmmaker in the past like two years like my voice and style two or three years you know uh and, and you know you can see sprinkles of it throughout all of my movies but i think i've really honed it when i did bethany and and from there um you know, I've, I've had this, you know, voice and style, I feel, um, uh, you know, that I've built up on and, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think that comes from the experience of, you know, I was able to trial and error. I was able to try things out on each movie and go, you know, like, yeah, it worked in this movie, but I don't actually want to do that thing ever mm-hmm. again. You know, so I was able to try things out and, and, you know, it was it, it, a lot of my earlier films were like experiments. It was like my film school almost. And then, you know, uh, of course, you know, I don't think anybody watching it would think that like they play as regular movies, but I tried things differently to try and like feel out what my filmmaking style and voice would be. Um, and so I do agree with my dad's statement that like, you know, everything would be my early films. Shit. You know, even now these might be considered my early films that I'm still mm-hmm. making. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm 28 years old. A lot of these are still going to, if I continue at this rate are still going to be, the stuff from the early part of my career. So fascinating to hear, isn't it? When you, you look back and you just go, yeah, well, of course there were my early films. It's all right. 
because I'm still making movies and that's what we want to do and aim to do. So if you get a chance, I say as a director, you get a chance to make a movie, go make a movie because it's, they don't come up that often. And the more you're making movies, the more chance you are, someone's going to go, Oh, well come and do this movie then, you know? I, I agree. And, you know, now I've, I've gotten more selective and I pull back and I do like about, you know, one a year as a director and then I fill the rest of the time producing. Yes. Um, so I'm less selective producing than I am directing. Now, directing, I pull back and do a, a, like one a right. year. Yeah, that makes a, a right. big difference. Let's talk about some of your um, later films, the films that are sort of around now and the films that we're sort of talking about uh, today. Obviously, For Jennifer is uh, sequels of your found footage movie to Jennifer. Yeah, it's the fourth it's the fourth one fourth in that franchise. One. And the fact that you're producing yeah. this rather than directing and you haven't directed one since the first one, right? Is that correct? Yeah, correct. And what I've done is I've been giving a voice to first-time mm, filmmakers. Which is really um, cool. So, you know, a lot of them are, you know, the the first one, I mean, the second one was made by Hunter Johnson, who's a first-time filmmaker. And I've actually produced a couple of his movies since then. He's gone on and made, since that, he's made, like, I think, like six or seven feature films. Uh, Jody Barton, this was his, who directed for Jennifer. It was his first feature film as a director and writer. Um, and Frank Merle, who did the third one, he actually had directed a movie before. Um, uh, but you know, it's still, it's, uh, early in his film, uh, feature film career. I think it was his second or third feature. And why, what was the reason for doing sequels then? Was it a case of, well, that did well and we can, get the same amount of money or a bit more to make another one a little bit of that and a little bit of like hunter johnson pushed me to do a sequel for the second one and from there i just kept going well if the, it's open the floodgates are open then <laughs> <laughs> and what do you bring to the table then as a producer um now is it i i resources um you know uh, my advice um you know, I, I don't get in the way of uh, creativity ever as a producer. Um, you know, if, if my if my director asks me, uh, I give my opinion, but I won't offer my opinion without being asked, especially creatively. Um, you know, so I just I just handle what's in, uh, behind them so they could worry about what's in front of them. Mm. Right. That's really cool. You know, I, I would never as I have too much respect for the position of the director that I never do um, anything that I would not want a producer to do when I'm directing. And so, you know, that's how I handle stuff as a, as a producer. And, you know, one of the other. So I, I stay out of creativity a lot of the time unless they ask me to get involved. That's really great. Yeah. And I think it's a lot. It's good advice for producers out there, young producers. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add to that to, to help young producers out there or producers what what advice would you give them you know about finding projects or working on projects a lot of producing is being good at negotiating being good at negotiating managing personalities and and knowing that uh, and and creating connections um having access to talent and also knowing that uh you know knowing how to handle situations and and you know staying cool under pressure but also knowing when to allow yourself to be angry and upset because you know that's that's one thing that i think you have if you're cool under pressure but you lose your cool maybe one or two times maybe three times a movie you, if you reserve those times that you lose your cool the the people know that it's super important and they'll like leave it alone mm. you know what i mean like and that's and you have to utilize those in the right moments yeah i don't know if that sounds ridiculous no that's some good advice the the, the times where the, there's only maybe one or two times i've i've 
somewhat lost it. And that's just slightly raising my voice. But then instantly I regret it. And, and, and it's, it's never a good thing uh, unless, like you say, it's, it, you know, there's no getting away from it. And, and sometimes you do need to kind of be a little bit more um, loud. Uh, but you're right. That's some, that, that, that's, that's some good advice. Yeah, it's very good. Um, and let's talk about directing then in terms of one of your latest movie, as far as I can tell, there's probably seven others, um, Beyond the Law, because this isn't a horror. This I know you haven't just made horrors, but I think this is interesting because this is, you know, it's more of an action thriller, uh, crime action thriller, you know, and it's starring Steven Seagal and DMX and Johnny Mesner. I mean, talk us through how this came about for you, how different it was to create something like this and, uh, and how great it was to work with someone like Steven Seagal. It was, it was an interesting experience. You know, I, I made, um, you know, I think like a very moody, uh, thriller with, with action elements, you know, and, and I think it's a fun, uh, interesting movie. Um, and I, I had a lot of fun with the, the colors and, and style to it. And a lot of the violence is, is, pretty great. Um, so I had fun. Ultimately, like, you know, I, I, um, took a break from horror, uh, for a few years and, and started doing other genres because, you know, uh, I, I hit like a wall in horror, which, uh, I don't know if other people have experienced, but like, you know, at a certain budget level, it just mm-hmm. capped out. Like there was, there was no, like, that's the one thing a lot of people don't talk about is like, you know, in horror, like, I, and, and uh, I'm just being like very frank between 500,000, there's like, it's up to $500,000 mm-hmm. budget. And then anything above that is like studio. It's like Blumhouse or, or these other places. There's nothing in between, you know, there, there is, people aren't making the $1.5 million horror movie on an indie scale, you know? So like I want, I wanted to have much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally understand that. So like, I mean, that's, but that's the truth. Like, you know, $500,000 is like the cap out on a lot of these mm, movies. It, is. it seems to be the norm. So you, yeah. So you, so you want to move away and sort of go, well, I want to make, you know, I want live for a bit and get paid, but also make movies that have a bit more budget so you can create more, you know, more vision, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, ultimately my goal was to, you know, work on a higher level. I mean, I, you know, I want every movie I direct to feel like a step yeah. up and, you know, I felt like at horror, my next, my next option would have been a lateral move. Yeah. So, right. I wanted to, and I didn't want to be one of those people that gets caught doing the same thing over and over again, because once you, the problem is, is like, you know, I, I spent a good, and I found a way to get out of it, but I spent a good amount of my career. I was doing these lower budget movies and, you know, I would let producers know, Hey, I made this movie for X amount of dollars because I thought like they'd be impressed and they'd go, Oh my God, you know, if he can do that with this kind of money, imagine what he could do with this kind of money. But I'm going to tell you right now, that's not how people think. If people watch your movie and they think it's a good movie and you've done a good job and you tell them, hey, you made it for, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars months is going to be like, oh, great. This guy's good at making movies for two hundred and fifty thousand yeah, dollars. True. Very let's, true. Uh, let's give him another two hundred and fifty thousand dollar movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Because he did a good job or she did a good job. Yeah, so exactly. It's like, well, they didn't need anything more than what they had. Yes. Give them that. Yeah. 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 
So you've so what's the what's the way out of that? Like you say, you move genres, but also do you tell them it's bigger I budget? Genres. But it's, you just move genres. I mean, I stopped talking about budgets, and then I I I moved genres, and that's the thing is like you know I'm giving away little secrets of things that I've learned, so hopefully I don't have people that are hiring me listening. Yes, to this. I understand. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. What did you learn from Beyond the Law? Then, like you say, doing something slightly different slightly out of your wheelhouse even though it's not because we're making a film is making a film um and that you you now can't wait to take to your next one um you know i i think i i learned how to deal with you know every time i learn how to deal with personalities um you know uh, on on a different on a different scale and and i think you know beyond the law was the most difficult shoot of my entire life um was it different what in terms of because was it weather bad was it just was a lot of stuff to get done in a short space of time it was a lot of stuff to get done in a short space of time and my dad went to the hospital on day one of filming um and he ultimately you know after we finished filming um you know and and i i I was with him a lot of time but he ultimately passed away from that hospital stay um you know he never left the hospital from that point and so you know i i went uh you know so i would film and then go visit him in the hospital um so it was the i was not sleeping it was not a it was not an easy um experience at all um but i think i learned what i can you know what strength i have in me to get through difficult situations because if i could get through that i could get through anything and you know i wanted to quit i wanted to quit and not do it anymore but every time i would talk to my dad he he was super against it and i think it was because he knew if i quit then if I really did quit, I think either a, I believe he, you know, I think it's a, a, a multitude of things. I think B, you know, a, he, he believed that, um, you know, uh, he would have wanted me to finish the movie cause that's how he is. He would have wanted me to, to do that. He wouldn't have wanted to get in the way of it. That's just how he was, you know, that made him happy knowing I was doing stuff. But B, I think he knew if I quit and stopped doing the movie, then his situation was, was worse than he wanted to believe it was. Right. Yeah. So I, I didn't, I didn't quit because I knew he wouldn't have wanted me to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so you managed to get through that because that must've been a really horrific time and carry on to the edit and just get the film delivered. Imagine that was just yeah heartbreaking, but it was yeah, and 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 I and I will say that that movie and then the movie I did after he passed away, um, you know, the, so I did two movies in in that span because I had already been contracted to do them, right. but um, you know, those movies were super difficult, and I would also say, um, you know, uh, I probably had a if, if I did, I apologize to anybody involved, but I probably had a shorter fuse in the in those time periods. Wow. Your career is incredible. It's going from strength to strength. It's going to keep going. It's super exciting. Thank you so much for the advice you've given. If you can give one final bit of advice to a filmmaker coming up now, what would you give? I would say, look, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you're at home, uh, now is the perfect time to write your script. Now is the perfect time to pick up a phone and film something, do something because I mean, you know, you're, you're at home looking for something to do, create. Um, you know, I, I read somewhere that Edgar Allan Poe, uh, was writing during this. I read that, you know, during 
during the uh, during the uh, the the plague, you know, uh, that's when Shakespeare was writing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's definitely do something right. You know, shoot something. If you want to make something, make it. Um, and I think that's the most important advice I can give, uh, you know, because ultimately there's really no excuse now. And it would be acceptable to have something with limited resources now. So just make it. Very good advice. So true. Um, And where can people follow you on the socials then? Obviously, you've got your 70,000 followers, uh, so maybe they'll get a follow back. But whereabouts can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at James Cullen B. And then I'm on Instagram at James Cullen B. (laughs) Perfect. It's amazing. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Hopefully I didn't ramble too much. (laughs) Oh man. No, it It was was brilliant. brilliant. And and good luck with releases of everything and with your next stages. And I'll see you next time I'm in LA for sure. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Let's link up, please. Uh, We would have, if, if there wasn't the whole coronavirus situation, Um, (laughs) we were, we were on the cusp of it, but we, you know, yeah, Yeah, (laughs) so close, so close. Um, Ian, where can people follow you? Same. I'm on Twitter, Ian Sharp and Instagram. I think I'm Ian Sharp one. So uh, that's me. Perfect. Is that sharp with a P E or just, Uh, just a P yeah and you can follow cool. me at Giles Alderson or the Filmmakers Podcast at Filmmakers Pod and if you do like this do tell your friends get the word out there because that's what's so important and how we grow and we keep doing this um, and remember you can go make your indie film though even right now even if you are stuck in your homes you can go make your indie film but know who your audience is and get that out there and do it and if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well it is your duty to send the elevator back down uh james thank you again thank you so much thank you for taking the time my pleasure and we will see you all thank you for listening next tuesday take care everyone bye-bye